have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Numbers, chapter 5. Numbers, chapter 5. I often ask my wife how she feels the service went. You know, she's kind of a sounding board for me. And so, uh, you know, after a, after a, a Sunday or a Wednesday, you know, often I'll ask her, you know, honey, how'd you, how'd you think it went today? You know, how'd you, oh, I thought it was good, you know, or, you know, well, this was, you know, could have been better. And, and, uh, <laughs> And I, I, I agree with her usually, but then uh, every now and then, you know, I'll say, well, what'd you, how'd you think the message went, you know, today? She says, well, it was difficult material. That is code for I could barely stay awake. <laughs> so as we're looking at the book of Numbers, it's difficult material. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 5 and 6 tonight. So uh, there is some difficult material here, or I shouldn't say difficult material, not hard to understand, but you know, hard sometimes to find some application for us in our, in our culture, in the, in the New Testament, in the, in the Christian life that we have uh, to live through and enjoy. But I do believe that there is a blessing in the Word of God and this is why we're, we're kind of committed to continue to teach through the Word of God. You know, let's be honest. There are some passages that are fun to study together and some passages that are difficult material. But I do believe that the full counsel of God's Word is such a worthy task for us to go through as a congregation, as a people. So uh, let's take a look at Numbers. I hope to get through chapters 5 and 6 tonight. Let's see exactly how far we do get, and uh, we'll, go, we'll take it from there. But let's begin by reading, uh, if you'll follow with me, the first uh, four verses here, and we'll get into the text. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female, you shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Ceremonial separation. Remember, God is now dwelling in the midst of this people. He has set up tabernacle at the very center of the nation. He's given instructions on how they are to camp around the tabernacle, God being in the center of the nation. And God wants to maintain in the heart of his nation that he is a holy and righteous God. And so there are those that would be ceremonial, unclean, those that would come in contact with a corpse, anything really relating to death. And God would demand a certain process of cleansing before they could be restored back into the camp. And uh, not all of that is covered here. We're getting just kind of highlights. But God reminding his people, although I am in your midst, I am still God. I am still holy. And you must never lose that sense of his holiness, of his awesomeness in the midst. 
Lest you become too casual as a people. Lest you become too kind of comfortable with the idea that, well, God's just in our camp now. Remember that He is holy. And that to be in in the presence of the Lord is an awesome thing. And to have Him in your camp at the center of your nation is a great privilege and a great opportunity of fellowship and relationship. And God would, throughout His covenant, with the, in the Old Covenant with His people, maintain this constant reminder of His holiness, this constant reminder of sin, the effects of sin, man's separation from a holy God as the result of sin. The need for atonement would constantly be in their camp. They would always be offering sacrifices. This understanding that there must be an atonement, a payment, something that would save man and redeem man back into relationship with a holy God. And of course, we know that much of this would ultimately point to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our Savior. He is our atonement. He is our Passover lamb. And I think that that's probably a good thing for us to be reminded of in today's culture as well. That we would never lose the value we place on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That being a Christian and being in this wonderful relationship with God would never become kind of casual or kind of nonchalant. I don't mean that we're to go through some kind of formal, you know, religious kind of for- format to, to try and impress God with how, you know, impressed we are of Him, but rather something that we would maintain in our heart, that we would never forget that we were at one time lost and without hope, that we are living in a sinful world, that we ourselves are sinners saved by grace. That Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished would always be something very special and very precious to us. This is what I think God is looking to instill in the heart of his people and the heart of his nation. And in fact, I think much of today's lack of spiritual life is it comes from a lack of understanding concerning the holiness of God concerning the sinfulness of man. Isn't that some, some struggle for some? They don't see a real need in their life for Jesus, no appreciation for what Jesus has, has accomplished. They, they see themselves as basically good. I, I'm not an evil person. God accepts me. He knows my heart. I'm a good person. This is not the kind of thing that you could come to in the camp of Israel. You could never come to that conclusion. Well, God accepts me. I'm a good person. Let's go visit the tabernacle. No, there was always a sense of his holiness, a sense of separation, so that there would be an appreciation for that priesthood ministry, for the atonement, for the sacrifice, all of that ultimately pointing and leading us to Jesus Christ. But we do see also in the New Testament that Jesus is willing to touch the unclean. We see this separation that God gave Moses instruction for, that these people were, these lepers and those that were, had anything to do with death were to be separated. Excuse me. I remind you of a passage in Matthew. You don't need to turn. Let me just read this to you. Matthew chapter 8. Speaking of Jesus, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You see, to be a leper was to be completely separated and excluded from this relationship within the people of God. And here, as this multitude, this leper has the faith to push through his uncleanness, to push through that separation, and he comes to Jesus. He knows that if Jesus is willing, he can be cleansed. And Jesus said, I am willing. And it's interesting that that the writer of the Gospel, Matthew, he says, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Very powerful statement. Jesus was, was willing to touch that leper. The love of God extending out even to those who had been lost, even to those that were separated and excluded. The heart of God wanting to save, wanting to redeem, wanting to cleanse. Not just a physical healing for this man, but really an expression of the compassion of Jesus. The compassion, the love of God for those that are lost. We know that Jesus was not intimidated with the unclean. We know that he in fact came to save and make clean. He is willing. He's willing today. Whatever you may sense is separating you from the love of God. Whatever sense of uncleanness that you may carry. Whatever sense of being excluded from God, from the people of God, from the, from the work of God. Jesus is willing. He's willing to touch you and make you clean. And he merely looks for us to come to him and recognize his work for us in salvation. Why don't we do this? Let's turn to Mark chapter 5. I was just going to reference it, but I want you to see it again. Mark chapter 5. It's talking about God's heart to save. The separation because of sin, but the redemption because of Christ. Again, we're talking about those that that were to be put out from the camp, the lepers, those that, as we read, uh, command the children of Israel, they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge. This would be whether it be an issue of blood, whatever becomes defiled by a corpse, they are to be put out from the camp. That brings new meaning to this passage in Mark chapter 5. Pick it up with me in verse 25. Mark 5 and verse 25, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. This, this would have been someone that had been, would have had to be set outside the camp. Verse 26, And had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus... She came behind him in a crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." 
Why was she trembling? Why was she so afraid? Why was she so fearful? Because she was unclean. And she had pressed in to touch this teacher, this man of God. She was to be keeping herself separated. She was to be keeping distant from the camp. But in her heart, faith, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. And Jesus, of course, says that your faith has made you well. Putting your faith in Jesus is the, is the redemption. It is the solution to that separation that we have from God. That distance that you feel. Just come to Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Touch Jesus, even the hem of His garment, and you will be whole. You will be well. Back with me to Numbers chapter 5. So we see this ceremonial separation. Numbers moves on. So do we pick it up in verse 5. We look now at confession and restitution. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. So there is this practical kind of not only a confessing of the sin, not only an acknowledging of the wrong, but a sense of restitution for the wronged party. This, of course, would serve as a deterrent, but it would also serve as a relief for the injured party. God bringing some very practical things in, but looking for people to acknowledge their wrong. There needs to be confession. There needs to be an ownership, if you will, of the, of the sin, of, the, of what's happened. And not only confessing it, but making restitution. That that really kind of uh, shows the heart of really acknowledging it and and wanting it to to be made right. Not only with God, but also with men. I remind you of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is teaching His people right here in the early part of their journey, the early part of them as a nation. God is looking for hearts to come clean, to be honest and confess and acknowledge your sin. Not to justify, not to rationalize. There's really no hope, there's no purpose in trying to justify or excuse ourselves when we have sinned. First John says, listen, if you say you have no sin, who do you deceive? Yourself. Only, you're really only fooling yourself if you say, I don't have any, I'm not, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm okay. I'm good. You know, I'm, me and God are good. It's a self kind of delusion because God knows and truthfully, you know, but you, you project this, but really, You deceive yourself. God's not looking for us to justify ourselves, nor was he in the nation of Israel in these early years. Confess. Get it right. Move on. God will forgive. 
Bring the atonement. Let there be forgiveness. Let there be a sacrifice made. Come and get it right with God. Get it right with man. Doesn't Jesus teach that if your brother is offended, what do you do? Go. Be reconciled to your brother. Get things right. Don't try to defend. Don't try to stand in your own you know, self-righteousness, justification. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Better to be honest and acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge our, our shortcomings, make our hearts right with one another, apologize, you know, get it right, ask for forgiveness, and then, of course, making it right with the Lord. And the Bible says that if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Faithful and just because He Himself has made full restitution for us at the cross. In the Old Testament, they would have to add that one-fifth, a 20% restitution. But in Christ, all things have been paid in full. Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. He used that Greek word, telelestia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Tetelestai, which means it is finished. It's the same word that would be put over the Roman documents at the end of a tax, their tax documents, meaning paid in full. You see, when we confess our sins to the Lord, the grace of God in Christ is, com- is complete to forgive us. I'd rather be forgiven. I'd rather confess, acknowledge, and be forgiven than to pretend and, uh, you know, justify and be deluded, self-deceived. Better to get our hearts right with God. And that's what God is working into the heart of his nation as well. Get your hearts right. Don't pretend you're without sin. Don't pretend you're going to be perfect. We all make mistakes. Get your heart right with one another. Get your heart right with the Lord. We move on in Numbers verses 11 through 31. And I'm not going to take the time to read this whole section. I will read the introduction to it and then summarize. Take a look with me, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, Or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. This law to resolve jealousy, this law to try and reconcile a marriage wherein the woman has either been unfaithful, the wife has been unfaithful, or there is some real deep-seated suspicion in the heart of the husband that she has been unfaithful. Maybe she hasn't, but the husband is just consumed with this spirit of jealousy. What do we do? Is there, a, is there a provision in the law? This is what this law is, is actually uh, speaking about. 
the ceremony after the, his, the husband would then bring his wife to the priest with this offering and there would be a ceremony. And that's what happens in verses 16 through 28. You're welcome to read those details. I'll summarize it for you here tonight. Basically, the priest would prepare water. He would take some dust from the tabernacle's floor, sprinkle that in some water. He would write on a scroll the curse that was to come upon this woman if she had, in fact, committed adultery and defiled herself. And after writing this curse on the scroll, the, 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 uh, the woman would concede, yes, if I have done these things, I acknowledge this would be the curse upon me. Then they would wash the water, uh, wash the ink off of the scroll and mix a little of that ink in with the, the water. And then the woman would drink the water. And so you talk about, you know, eating your own words. The ink from the scroll would actually come and get mixed in a little bit to the drink of the water. And over time, the judgment of God would become evident. God would then supernaturally work in this situation if, in fact, she were guilty, if she came down with some type of an, uh, an internal disease, especially affecting her womb, it would be uh, seen as evidence of her guilt. But if she was free from disease and continued to bear children, it would be seen as a vindication. Now, I'll talk about some observations on this, but just finish up with me now. Pick it up in verse 29 and uh, see the conclusion of, of this process. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt, if in fact she had uh, committed and defiled the marriage at herself. So God has given this process by, by wherein if this woman has fallen into sin and is not willing to admit it and is kind of trying to conceal it, God has provided this means wherein it would be revealed. And uh, if she was innocent, that would prevail. If she were guilty, that would prevail. Let's talk about some observations here. How do we kind of see this playing out in, in, in the life of the nation here? I like what David, Pastor David Guzik says here. He points out that what we're reading here in the book of Numbers is case law. Let me read you what he says. This ceremony only dealt with an adulterous wife and not a husband, because for the most part, the Mosaic law was case law, not meant to anticipate every potential situation, but to give examples that would set precedents for other cases. It is likely that the same ceremony would, have, would be practiced if a wife became suspicion, uh, suspicious of a husband's adultery. So it may be that this very uh, ritual was played out in the case of a wife being raised up with suspicion as well. God would cause the water, ultimately, to reveal the sin. Now, God is merciful, as we've said earlier, when we acknowledge and confess our sin. But if we hide and deny our sin, not only do we deceive ourselves, but we really do, we remove the opportunity for blessing and we bring cursing upon our lives. I remind you of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit 
will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The sense here in these laws as we look at them is that God is wanting his people to be honest and walk in integrity of heart before him. First of all, he sees all, he knows all, and he's able to reveal all. Our sin is able to find us out. God is able to see, to trip us up, to make sure that these things come to the surface. Now, it's not that God desires to air all of our dirty laundry publicly. But I do think there is something when a heart refuses to be honest, when a heart refuses and rejects the light and wants to uh, pretend and, and kind of act as though there is no sin, that God mercifully has to reveal that sin. There's no remedy for you if you can't come clean in your heart before the Lord. There's no opportunity for salvation, for forgiveness. Because you have to be, you have salvation, relationship with God. It has to be built on the truth. It has to be built on an honesty between you and God, a recognition. That's what confessing is. It's acknowledging. It's, it's agreeing with God. Hey, Lord, it's true. I do need forgiveness. I do need a savior. To say anything less is not honest before the Lord and not really uh, giving the right value to the work of Jesus Christ. If you're really that good and that okay, no need to send Jesus to the cross. Because we could just justify and rationalize our way all the way to heaven. Who needs a Savior? You see, you're undermining the very work of salvation when you're dealing in the shadow and the dark, when you're rejecting truth. And God is instilling that into the heart of the people, even here in the Old Covenant law. And something else that I, I, I notice here in this, and I, I think this is part of the spirit of the law, is that God desires a resolution between a husband and a wife. You know, jealousy can be a very destructive force in a marriage. Jealousy, even the suspicions that we can have with one another can become destructive, even if they're not legitimate. Just those that jealous suspicion can become a very destructive force in a relationship and in a marriage. And God is really mercifully trying to give a way for this couple to resolve these things. God is giving a, a, a spiritual law to, to kind of remedy this conflict that would come to a marriage. God's trying to save marriages. He's not just trying to reveal sin. He's trying to give a, a process by wherein a man's heart or a woman's heart can be restored in relationship to one another. And I believe that's part of the spirit here, a way to reconcile peacefully jealousy, evil suspicions, unforgiveness, bitterness. These are destructive things in our lives and in our marriages and in our homes and, and relationship. This woman would drink this Cup, And if she were guilty, it says there in the book of Numbers that it was considered a, a bitter cup. The Lord will often use this idea of drinking down a cup of bitterness as something of a curse, something of a judgment upon sin. And it reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? It did me. Thinking of Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he pray? Lord, if it be possible, take this what? This cup from me. Lord, I don't want to drink this bitter cup. What was in that cup that Jesus was 
was being asked to drink. The sins of the world. The curse of the entire race of mankind. The sins of all the world. The judgment, the curse, the penalty, the punishment for sin. That was some bitter cup. And Jesus was asked to drink it. And it, it disturbed his spirit. It said that he was restless in his spirit. That it, it, One passage says that he even began to sweat like drops of blood. He was really laboring. Not with the death of the cross, although certainly <laughs> that was no picnic. But it wasn't just the physical death. It was the bitter cup. It was the Son of God having to take upon Himself the sins of all mankind. That's what he was wrestling with. The, the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus who had dwelt in eternity. One with the Father. Never separated. Never cursed. Never anything but God and perfection and righteousness and holiness. He now is being asked to drink this cup down. But he drank it, didn't he? It also reminds us of the Last Supper when he gave the cup to his disciples and he said, now, this is the cup of my blood. Drink it. And as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. The cup that Jesus drank was a curse unto himself. It cost him his blood, his life, his sacrifice. But it became the cup of blessing to you and I. It became the cup of the new covenant given for the remission of sins. Had Jesus not drank that cup, we would be drinking that cup for ourselves. We would have to take that bitterness and that judgment and that curse. But Christ drank it for us that He might give to us the cup of blessing. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He drank that cup for you and I. He took that judgment upon Himself. Something of that imagery is seen here as this, the, the woman would be asked to drink this bitter cup, this cursing, this, bless, this, this judgment upon her if she were guilty. It says that her womb would swell, her belly would swell, and her thigh would shrivel up. And the in, in, implication is that her, she would actually dry up and not be able to bear children. But if she were innocent, she, none of those things would happen. And in fact, she would continue to be blessed and fruitful. So God demonstrating really a way for couples to be reconciled. God demonstrating the reality that He can reveal and will reveal sin. But also, I think, speaking ultimately to the cup that Jesus would drink on our behalf. Let's move on into chapter 6. The next uh, passage that we look to now is in verses 1 through 21. Uh, We see the Nazarite vow. And again, I'll read some, summarize some, but pick it up with me now in verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink, He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grape 
excuse me, fresh grapes or raisin. So nothing of the vine would he touch. Verse four, all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Verse 5, all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he shall be holy or completely separated, given, consecrated, isolated unto the Lord. This is the Nazarite vow. It is a time of separation. It was not mandatory. It was not insisted upon. You did not have to do this. This was purely optional. This was given not as a kind of a a religious command, but rather as an opportunity, a privilege for those who in their heart wanted to give themselves more completely unto the Lord. And God allowed this to be something so for a season you would set yourself completely aside to seek and devote and consecrate yourself to the Lord. This would come up out of a heart of thanks. This would come up out of someone. Imagine now you're living in the Old Testament time and the Levites, they are a tribe of people that have this special privilege of the priesthood and this special privilege of kind of serving the Lord in ministry. And you don't have that opportunity. You're not one of the Levites. You don't, you're not in that tribe. Now today, we've all been made priests unto God. We've all been given this wonderful access and opportunity to serve the Lord. But in this day, not everyone could serve at that commitment, at that level. And so God gives an opportunity that for a time, they could set themselves aside and they too could be consecrated, dedicated, devoted, to the Lord, and they would be holy. In other words, separated unto God, just as the Levites and the priests were unto the Lord. It was an opportunity if you wanted to, to kind of taste that kind of commitment and devotion to the Lord. It was a privilege. It was a blessing to the people. Not some regulation, not some duty, not some religious obligation. There was no compulsion here. You never had to be a Nazarite. You never had to take a vow like this. But if you wanted to, if it was in your heart and you desired to, God gives some very special instruction here on how you can participate. And this is something that he would honor. This is something that he would he would embrace and receive. You may remember Samson. Samson was a Nazarite from his birth. It was announced by an angel that he would be born and and instructed to his parents to separate him as a Nazarite from his birth. God had special plans for Samson and wanted him to be completely consecrated and devoted to God. God was was going to use Samson as a deliverer, as a judge for his people. And you may remember Samson in his time of weakness, He got involved in a relationship with a woman named Delilah. 
And she began to press him. What is the secret of your strength? Samson had supernatural strength. Samson had, I mean, you know, if you read the accounts, it's just supernatural, uh, God-given strength and ability that came to Samson. And, And Delilah pressed him. Why are you so strong? What is the secret of your strength? And over this time of pressing him and pressing him, in a moment of weakness, he disclosed to her that if you were to cut my hair, I would be like any other man. I would lose my strength. And so they came upon him, they shaved his hair, and he became no longer strong, but just like every other man. No supernatural strength, no ability of God, because his hair was cut. Now, what was it? Was his strength in his hair? His strength was in his consecration to the Lord. His strength was in the relationship of devotion and consecration to God. Hair does not make one strength strong or weak. Aren't you glad? Some of you men are especially glad tonight. <clears throat> hair, the hair on his head simply symbolized that he was God's man set apart for God's use and God's purpose. And as long as he was devoted to God, as long as his heart and life were set apart for God, he was strong. But when he gave up on that consecration, when he turned his heart away from the Lord, when he allowed himself to be taken out of that that relationship with him, he became weak. The cutting of his hair was the evidence of his broken relationship with the Lord. And church, that's where our strength is too. Our strength is in our relationship with the Lord. It's not in anything that we have in ourselves. It's not in anything that we can become in ourselves. Samson was not in the gym pumping iron. (laughs) Samson was strong. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I I don't mean to say anything negative about that. I think physical exercise is a good thing. But this was not Samson's secret. Nor is it the secret to strength in our lives. It's being dedicated and devoted to the Lord. It's setting your heart completely after Him. It's saying, Lord, I want to be wholly Yours. I want to be completely given to You because You have been so gracious and good to me. Jesus would set His privilege aside. Jesus would humble Himself. And that's what this Nazarite vow is setting aside those regular privileges of life only for a season, for a time. But it was a symbol of that heart being completely the Lord's. And we think about Jesus who dwelt there in heaven. Book of Philippians talks about him humbling himself. He took a vow as well, didn't he? He made a decision that he would give himself completely to the work of the Father. And he humbled himself and became a man. And he, was in, he walked in such obedience to his commitment that he even died upon the cross. And Philippians talks about how him humbling himself in obedience even unto death on a cross, therefore hath God highly exalted him. The strength of Jesus was in his obedience and in his humility. Therefore hath God highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, both in heaven and on earth. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The secret to strength is 
is humbling ourselves unto God. The secret of real strength and and character and power in life is walking with the Lord, walking in relationship with Him, walking in devotion to the Lord. It goes on, uh, and again, I, I just kind of summarize verses 9 through 21. We won't take the time to read it. It talks primarily at the end of the vow. So the Nazarite would set this time aside. He would not cut his hair. He would not eat anything from the vine. And then at the end of his vow, he would bring an offering. Also, it gave a, a little bit of an opportunity. For example, it says, you shall not touch any, un, any, any dead carcass. Um, if you accidentally came across, let's say you're in the middle of your vow, you know, you, you're going pretty, I don't, you know, however long you set aside, but let's say you're well into your vow and you accidentally stumble across a dead animal. And now, wow, my vow is broken. Do I have to start all over again? Everything, this commitment that I've made. The Lord would allow a, an offering. In the case of an accidental contact with a corpse, you could come, make an offering, and this would keep you in, in the process of your vow. But at the end of that vow, you were to come and you were to bring a threefold offering to the temple and for, and for the priest to present. You were to offer a burnt offering, which, of course, symbolizes a consecration, completely being consumed by the Lord. You were to make a sin offering for the remission of sin. And you were to make a peace offering, this symbolizing the fellowship, the the relationship of peace between you and God. You were to shave your hair, and all that would then go into the fire of the peace offering. Again, something of a symbolizing all that I am, my very being, Lord, I offer unto you. And this is the way that you would conclude the vow of the Nazarite. Let's finish here tonight. Verses 22 through 27, we see the priestly blessing. In chapter 6, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And here you see the heart of God for his people. Here you see the desire of God in the midst of his nation. These laws, these regulations... I'm glad this little few verses is kind of here for us. You know, as you read through these laws, as you read through the regulations of the Old Covenant, it's pretty rigid. It seems to be pretty, in fact, sometimes kind of harsh, like, wow, it seems like God is angry with this group of people almost perpetually. And, you know, you do this and you don't do that. Of course, God is teaching. God is tutoring men to Christ. God is, he must reveal man's sin in order that man must, that man will be able to receive salvation. And so God is doing all of this to bring people into relationship. And here's the heart. God's not looking to bring this regulation to somehow distance man from himself. But rather, God is wanting to bless. God is wanting to show his favor. God is wanting to lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
And I want to say that to you tonight here. We're closing. We're closing a little early, but we've covered a lot of ground. But I want you to hear this again. I want to read it again and a few more comments. But I want this to be where your heart lands tonight. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Those were the priests. These were the men that God God had appointed to intercede between himself and his people. Speak to Aaron and his sons. You tell the priests that I want to use them to bless the people. This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord wants to bless your life and keep watch over your life. God wants to protect you. That's what the idea of keeping you is all about. That God is wanting to bless. That means something good. And he wants to keep you, protect you, watch over you. Your steps are ordered. Your your days are numbered. God has watch over your life. And he's looking to bless, not for evil, but for good. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Your face shines. You know, the idea is that, you know, I don't know if, you know, when your kids walk into the room, you know, your father's face lights up. You know, uh, I've got um, a son getting married this weekend. So I have four. Two girls, two boys. The two girls are married, and my second daughter just recently married. And now I've got one of my sons getting married. So we're going to be down to just one left, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm starting to feel that as a father, this kind of little transition in my life, you know. And not that we're, you know, losing them to anything, but just that idea of change, you know. And I, you can't help but reminisce, you know. I just remember... You know, it seems like yesterday, coming home from work and walking into the house, you know, and just, ah, there they are, you know, and my face lit up, their face lit up, just that relationship that we have with our children. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of, you know, that love, that affection, isn't it God that has put those things in our our hearts? Isn't that something of, of a divine image that God has placed in us? And this is, the, this is the image here. May God cause his face to shine upon you. God loves you. God is thrilled about living in the center of your nation. God is excited about being, you being his people and he being your God. And this is what God desires for you and I and our relationship with him. Oh, that his face would shine upon you as you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, as you come into that place of grace and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lifting up his countenance, just the joy of the Lord. May the Lord rejoice over us tonight. And I believe that he does. I wonder what the heart of God feels when we come together and we worship him together. I wonder, you know, I I can't know for sure, but my sense is that it's something very precious to the Lord. That when His children gather together, not out of any sense of, you know, forced, you know, uh, compulsion, but just to sing, to give thanks, to pray, to open your heart up, to tell Him that you love Him. Like what we sang here tonight, you are the one that we love. You are the one we adore. Think of the heart of God as his children come to honor him and worship him. I believe that his countenance is lifted upon us.
something very precious, something very sweet in this relationship, something very beautiful here in this expression. And God telling Moses, now make sure your priests tell the people these things. So shall they put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. This is God's greatest blessing, putting his name upon his people. His name represents who he is. His name represents his entirety, his character, his being. This people shall be called by my name. These people belong to me. The New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit having become a seal, a mark. God has put his mark on you and I. He's not ashamed, the Bible says in the writer of Hebrews, that those who put their faith and trust in him, he's not ashamed to be called their God. God is not perpetually angry with us. God is perpetually rejoicing over us. It is a blessing to the Lord to be in relationship with you and I. God loves you. God wants that fellowship. He wants that intimacy. He wants that closeness. Oh, but pastor, I've sinned. How could he possibly? How could he want me? How could, he, how could I dare even imagine that he would receive my worship? Because of his grace. May the Lord be gracious to you. Because of his love for you. Because of the atonement. That's why he can say it to this people. Listen, these Israelites, they were no better than us. They had some of the same problems we have, don't they? And yet God said they're mine. Because they've entered into this covenant relationship with me. They've put their faith and trust in this sacrificial system that I've implemented, which ultimately would lead and point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They, in a sense, looking forward to Christ. You and I looking back to the cross. But we meet there at the cross and we find grace and mercy and help in time of need, and the Lord rejoices. The Lord, His face shines, His countenance is lifted as we come into that fellowship and relationship with Him. He loves us, and He wants to be uh, our God. He wants to put His name on you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this passage in the book of Numbers. Lord, some, some technical things, Lord, just some very specific instructions, but we know, Lord, these were to become something of a template to govern the nation, something of a case study to give an indication of how to deal with specific challenges that would come to the people. Also opportunities to make devotion and and to really express their love and appreciation to you, Lord. And Father, we see just in closing your love for them. We see that you loved this people. We see that you wanted to live and dwell in the midst of this nation. And so, God, it speaks to our hearts tonight as well. You want to live and dwell in the hearts of men. Yes, it is our privilege. Yes, it is our opportunity. But, God, you are longing for us. It says, Lord, that you loved the world. That's why you came. That's why you gave. That's why Jesus took that cup for us and drank it down on our behalf. Lord, I pray that these passages would encourage us tonight in our own relationship with you. I pray, God, that we would devote ourselves even more so to you. That we would, Lord, not out of some sense of duty, but just out of love.
Because you're so good and you're so wonderful to us, Lord, that we would respond in worship, that we would respond in lives just wanting to be given completely to you. Help us tonight, God. We do confess that we miss the mark. We do acknowledge that we are filled with shortcoming. But we ask for your help tonight. We ask that you would bless us, Lord. We ask that you would cause your face to shine upon us. We ask that you would lift your countenance in this place tonight, God. And that you would find a people that love you and that, Lord, you would draw us close to you. As our heads are bowed here tonight and just before we close in worship, I do want to give an opportunity if you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord. If you're here tonight and you don't have this kind of relationship with God, but He's speaking to you tonight and and you're ready to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the one who took that cup of judgment and punishment for your sin and for your shortcoming, and you're ready to, to allow Him to to take those sins from you tonight that you could stand before Him clean and have the Lord rejoice and embrace you. I'd love to pray with you if you're ready to receive Jesus into your life or maybe you need to rededicate your life to Him tonight. I'm not talking about just kind of that typical up and down type of thing that goes on in our journey. I'm talking about someone here tonight who really needs to recommit their life to the Lord. You've been living distant from Him. Your heart is not walking with Him. You're far from Him tonight. You know Him and you've had relationship with Him. You can't really say you need a relationship with Him for the first time, but you need to come back to Him tonight and recommit your heart. I'd love to pray for you as well. If you're here tonight and you need the Lord Jesus for the very first time, or you want to rededicate and recommit your life to Him, would you raise your hand where you're seated tonight so that I can see you and I'll pray for you. God bless you. They're in the back as well. You, ma'am, here in the center. Anyone else besides these two that have responded? God bless you here over on my far left. God bless you. The Lord is speaking to you. It's between you and Him. I'm simply going to pray for you. Anyone else? The Lord drawing you and you want to respond to His love tonight. Father, I thank You for these hearts that have responded here in this place tonight. I thank You, Lord, for the truth of Your love for us demonstrated once and for all in Jesus Christ. No reason to doubt tonight. No reason to be afraid. We can come tonight with confidence that you love us and that you sent Jesus to die on that cross for us. And so I do pray for those hands that have responded, Lord, that they would first, even as we study tonight, that they would acknowledge, that they would confess their sin, that they would simply admit, Lord, I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. I do fall short. I have drifted away. I'm not where I need to be in relationship with you, but I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to cleanse me. And I ask that cup of blessing, the cup of cursing that Jesus took so that I might enjoy the cup of blessing 
the remission and the forgiveness of my sins. Cleanse me tonight, God. Oh, and fill me with your spirit, God. Help me to walk and serve you in sincerity and truth. I want to come clean tonight. I want to live with you. And Lord, I pray. I pray for all of us tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That, you, that the Lord would put his name on you, his children, and that he would bless you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.